it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, a book I take with me everywhere I go. <laughs> He's a keynote speaker, a futurist, and in my humble opinion, one of the top followers on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, hi, everybody. Welcome this Friday. Um, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar. He's also one of the top followers you can find on for CIOs, CMOs, and CEOs about life, business, and well-being. Um, he's also one a author himself and, of course, a keynote speaker and on a lot of business press. But it's not about us. It's a Friday. This is our Friday to learn from everybody. Who's our awesome guest that we're kicking off with? We love having awesome CIOs on our show. And it's our privilege to start the show with Colleen Berg, Chief Information Officer at Zendex. Colleen is the Chief Information Officer at Zendex, Zendex where she oversees all business systems and technology globally. Colleen and her team are shaping Zendex benchmark for modern IT at scale and a customer-centric workforce. Colleen's passion is about the role of customer and employee experience in the digital age with over 20 years of experience across multiple industries and ever-changing technology landscape. Colleen is a digital and business model transformation leader. We encourage you to follow Colleen on Twitter at C-O-L-L-E-E-N-B-E-R-U-D-E. -E -E -E. Welcome Colleen to Disrupt TV. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. I mean, look, you are like a, the career path of like Silicon Valley CIO elite. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, companies like Palm, companies like Cisco, Adobe, right? And, and even you you got onto financial services. I think you at Fisher Investments for a while as well. Yeah. So this is amazing, right? And, and now you're at Zendesk. Uh, and when you think about this, right? You know, International Women's Day was just earlier this month. And, you know, this journey to CIO from where you are to Zendesk, I think it's really important, right? We've been spending a lot of time talking about the pathways uh, to tech. I was just on the phone with a friend, uh, Marie Wheat. She was like a general manager at IBM. We're just talking about what's happening in the world of witty, what's been going on. I mean, and in some industries like medicine, we've gone from 70-30 male to female ratio to 60 to 40 female to male ratio. Um, and the question is like, can that be done in tech? So just kind of get your perspective, your journey, right? And what advice you have for women in tech who might be pursuing getting to the C-suite? Yeah, thanks Ray. Um, so my journey, I, I don't even know if there is a customary journey to CIO, but um, I think mine is kind of interesting. I actually started my career working in operations in technology manufacturing. Um, I spent several years just working on scheduling the manufacturing line. I worked in quality and so forth. And I was always one of those people that was tinkering with how to make my job easier to do using the technology that I had at my hands. And um, my, my shift to technology really came several years later when I got picked up by SAP. Um, they were just hitting the market in North America and they were building their first consulting force in North America. And they hired me and they taught me how to use the technology and I ended up spending about six years traveling all over the world and implementing their systems in all different kinds of companies. And it was an amazing learning experience because I wasn't just learning about technology, but I was learning how different companies run, what cultures are different in different companies, which things are the same and which things are different. It was a tremendous learning experience for me. Were you like a FICO consultant or like what, what modules were you? <laughs> yeah, uh, it was manufacturing PP and uh, MMPP. Yep. And uh, my particular expertise was in planning. Um, so yeah. And, um, and, and then from there uh, at SAP, I was really my first move into a leadership role. And from there, um, I went on, as you mentioned, to work as a technology leader in a variety of different companies, Palm. Um, I worked at Cisco. I worked at Adobe for a number of years, Fisher Investments for a period of time, and now I'm at Zendesk. I feel really like I've had a really fortunate career to work at good brands and, and with important roles. That's amazing. That's amazing. We had uh, Kim Stevenson, uh, uh, former CIO of Intel, and Lenovo um, on our show. And, and she reminded us that, uh, you know, there are no IT projects, they're business projects. That's right. When you're leading large scale IT implementation and you're developing your investment thesis, strong trailblazer CIOs think about outcomes, stakeholder success, 
growth in revenue, cost optimization, con you know, conformance and compliance, yeah. but it's always well, you know, anchored in business. So the fact that you spend so much time with customers, yes. ensuring their success, understanding, you know, their definition of their transformation, yeah. that, that, that really what great CIOs do is, 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 is it how important is it for you to really be close to your stakeholders, not just your employees, your customers, your partners, the communities that you serve, so that you really understand the balance of technology and business in terms of enabling your company. You know, Val, I think you're, you're spot on. And I would say, you know, that to me has been of a, dif a differentiator in my career that I could always say that I was rooted in understanding business first, not technology first. And I love technology. I always have. Uh, but it's the balance of really knowing what outcome you're trying to drive, what business difference you're trying to make, and how you can do that with technology that I think uh, makes a good CIO. So back Ray, to your question about what advice I would have for women who might be seeking getting to this role. Right, right, My right. advice is actually pretty simple. <laughs> um, people sometimes can get focused on a lot of other things, but my advice is be the best at what you do. Oh. No, right? I agree with you. And, and that, that's gender that neutral advice. <laughs> <laughs> the, first thing, the first thing is, is that I think, um, People often don't realize, and by the way, I'll be transparent, myself included, as you get more senior, just how competitive it is oh, sure. to get into a good role. But on top of that, you know, it's still the case today that often women are not measured the same as men. So it's doubly important mm. that you just make sure that your foundation is that you're top notch at your profession. Terrific advice. Terrific advice. No, and hey, look, let's add one more thing. I'm now in your offices. It's the fun thing with Zoom. I'm now in your offices at the Zendesk headquarters. But, uh, but the one more thing, right? We adding the complexity of being a Silicon Valley CIO. Right. It is, this is like one of the hardest environments to be successful, right? Because everybody thinks they know what they're doing. They, they, they might even think they know your job better than your job because they're also tech, right? And so, so that's an added level. It may be a harder job than a CIO in Silicon Valley. I can't imagine, you know, being in the ocean of techies who yeah. have very strong opinions about everything. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, the truth is, you know, sometimes there are people that I work with who know a particular topic way better than I do or people on my team, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Which is great. You can tap into them, right? I mean, on the one hand, right? Exactly. And so for me, you know, and I don't think being a CIO anywhere is easy, but I think the problems are different. The challenges are different depending on where you are. And this is, I think, probably the chief challenge working in Silicon Valley is that everybody else is a technologist, right? I, and I used to say, you know, the numbers were better when I was at Adobe, but I was like one of 11,000 technologists and everybody else thought they could do my job better than me, right? But, um, <laughs> but the real trick is, is, you know, um, can you, can you create, can you A, distinguish and establish the value of the CIO organization and B, can you create an environment of openness and partnership where you can get you can get a win-win out of the fact that you have all these technologists around you plus your own organization? That's power if you can make that work, right? And when it doesn't work, it looks like an us and them, or it looks like people think of the IT organization as the people that issue the laptops and answer the phone on the service desk. But when it works, it's amazing. Right, absolutely. Uh, I have kind of a two-part question, and the second part I think is super hard because, you know, defining the future is always very difficult. Only Ray can do that. <laughs> but uh, when I think of only, you know, like only uh, almost 12 years ago, this guy invented or the, the, the bring your own device revolution, in my humble opinion. When you think about the mobile revolution, the social cloud certainly wearables and sensors and IoT and all this incredible velocity, both speed and direction yes. of technologies. The first part of the question is, how has the role of the CIO changed in the past decade? And I think the more difficult part is, can you give us a sense, because you've been doing it so long and doing it so successfully, take us into the future five to 10 years. In yeah. What would be the expectation of the CIO at the end of this decade? And of course, what's happening right now, I mean, it's, you know, things that are, for the first time, I think everyone in the world is thinking about solving one problem. And that may be unprecedented in itself. 
yep. this whole distributed, highly disruptive world that we've been in the last month, <laughs> really, yep. only yep. last month. Um, so what has changed in the past 10 years and where do you see us going given what we know today? You know, if I were to speak in broad brush uh, about how things have changed, for me, I would characterize it as um, the, the IT leadership uh, game in the past 10 years has moved from defense to offense. Yes. That's, that's in nice. actuality and in opportunity. It doesn't mean everybody's seizing that moment, right? But, um, but you know, if you think uh, uh, 10 years ago, much of what we were doing was reactive. It was kind of like, well, what are the needs of the business? And we're going to go build this. And, and, and it was just the nature of where we, we were, right? Today, you're in an environment, even if you're not in a tech company, many, many people, almost everybody at this point knows something about technology. It's kind of a lingua franca at this point. So we've had to become more open to working collaboratively. We've had to be become more open to letting go of the reins on everything, less command and control, and more how you kind of work in a loosely coupled environment, even in terms of how you're operating your IT organization. Mm -hmm. um, what I see going forward is really the opportunity for CIOs to take leadership. Mm -hmm. If you look at a recent Deloitte study of, um, they did a survey of C-suite members. They found, this was across industries, they found 16, only 16% 16 of C-suite members had any aspiration of leading a digital conversation or talking about how we become a digital company. That's brutal, brutal, brutal survey. So that is a true opportunity for someone who lives in this sweet space between business strategy and technology to be a true leader in the company in a way that I don't think we've always had the opportunity to in the past. Absolutely. My, the founder of my company for the last several years has said, this is Mark, that uh, the CIO with a strong business acumen is best position line of business leader to be the CEO because company needs to really view themselves as a technology, operate like a software business, and really uh, have that experimental culture where you can have a beginner's mindset and adopt as, as needed. So I think powerful CIOs, I agree, are well positioned to be really uh, dominant leaders in, in, in their businesses and in, in industries. So, and you know, it's, it's for this reason that I think it's super important right now that CIOs are thinking about, or, you know, frankly, even people that were, you know, the leaders that report to me, like IT leaders, like yeah. you need to understand your company's business. Right. You need to understand the market you're in and what's happening with it. Not, you, obviously you need to understand the technology and how it can be used, but really developing that keen sense of who are our customers? How is the expectations around customer experience changing? What can I do to affect my company becoming more customer centric? These are questions of the moment and they are prime questions for CIOs to take leadership on. That's true. Ray, what took so long to get Colleen on the show? She's like, <laughs> if I was speaking, I would be doing this right now. Wow. Stage I know. You know we're, we're putting together a whole bunch of uh, CIOs. Like we have the CIO chat. So every every month we're actually putting together like open office hours. Yeah, no agenda. It. People get yeah. together. Uh, we're going to do it again. I think, uh, let me look at the calendar here. Uh, but we're going to do it again. Like uh, I, I think it's like uh, April 3rd. So around 7 a.m. It's just we figure people are all home catching up. You know, we've yeah. been doing these on Sundays, which has yeah. been like a weird time, but everybody was catching up anyways on a Sunday. Now that everybody's working from home, we also do it on a regular work week, so everyone's okay. <laughs> I'm of days. People remind me, you know, my daughter was like, it's Thursday, Dad. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> yes, sir. My kids don't know what day is going on, right? And, and that's one of these things, right? All this shelter from home, all this work from home. I mean, we were talking to CIOs, like one of my friends in New York, and he's like, look, you know, we, we had 300 folks on laptops that suddenly need, you know, um, support um, in a way that never had before. And we had 400 people on desktops that never had laptops. And he's like, this is chaos. <laughs> like, oh my God, it's gonna be crazy. Wow. So uh, for everybody right now, we're all learning yeah. uh, where we have fragile points in our, in our system, right? 
and whether it's a process or a technology or whatever, we're all kind of finding our edges at the moment. And it's a great learning experience. And I think, you know, I certainly am thinking about how can I seize this opportunity to do things better as we come out the other side. Well, here's the interesting perspective. The number one issue we're seeing right now is business continuity plans. And I'm sure you're seeing that as well, because there are things in business continuity. We made assumptions that we never <laughs> thought would occur. <laughs> so, so, so what have you done right in helping to build that remote workforce, you know, focus on the employee experience? Because like now is like, you know, I mean, this is this is the time, right? I mean, we're all we're all in the middle of this. Well, you know, like a lot of other companies, we've been um, immersed in this for a, a good number of weeks now. And I'm, I'm part of the team, the leadership team that is running the business continuity steering team. We're, we're leading the decisions around how we navigate through this. And of course, we're in an environment, as you know, where things change on a daily basis. Zendesk mm -hmm. is a global company. And so um, we're having to navigate all geographies at the moment, essentially. Um, and um, so my role is really kind of twofold. I'm playing this leadership role as a leader in the company that's making decisions how we do this, but also as the CIO, helping figure out how do we make people productive working from home. So we made a decision. We were in an optional work from home, and two weeks ago, we moved to global mandatory work from home. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and uh it's, it's been challenging, especially as certain geographies close off, just basically shut down. Um, it, it's been tough. Now, some of the things we had to add from a process perspective and a technology perspective, like now you have everybody working from home. Mm -hmm. um, it's okay if you're on a Tuesday, you stay home in the morning and you flip open your laptop, but if you have to sit every day and work, you know, <laughs> monitor and they want a mouse, like, they're so demanding. No, but <laughs> no, no, no. So I, I agree with you. One of my sales is like this entitlement culture is ridiculous. Someone's like, can I have a standing no, desk? I, I mean, I, he's like, he's like, what the heck? Like, you want a standing desk? How do you balance, right? How do you balance giving people what they need as opposed to like, you know, we've been pretty clear, like we're not trying to recreate your work, your office workspace at home, but we want to make sure you have what you need to be productive. As a company, employee experience is very important to us. So we're trying to be very attentive to people's needs. So we did a couple of things. We, we made it possible for people to get that extra equipment that they need at home with some parameters around it. Um, and we also then had to think though as well about now, what does that mean to our service desk? It's, we certainly have the capability of our service desk people to support remotely, but some things like, for example, the ability to take over someone's desktop and help them we had that capability, but it wasn't something we used yeah. very aggressively because we didn't need to. But now, boy, we're using it every day. So we've just had to adjust and up our game so that we can stay on top of helping people with the issues they have. I'm really happy to say that we've been really able to keep our response time on tickets internally and so forth pretty stable. So it's worked pretty well. Um, one of the ways we've done that, we had a recent initiative where we really worked on getting the self-service uh, for our employees much more usable and effective so that they can go in and ask a question and the, you know, we use our own technology answer bot to automatically answer their question. And so um, that self-service using our own technology has been pretty effective for us in terms of helping mitigate some of the surge we might have experienced during this. That's terrific. Wow. How I mean, this CIOs, is great. How many CIOs can talk to customer service KPIs like response time? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely show evidence that you're a hands-on CIO and you work closely with your colleagues and, and, and business leaders because I, I would say it's probably one out of 100 CIOs that keep track of call time, hold time, and all the other. Hey, she's drinking her own champagne, too. Yeah. She is working at Zendesk. But, but, <laughs> I, also, but I, also, I also get a sense that um, because you're listening to your employees, and the fact that you did this two weeks ago automatically puts you in a trailblazer category. In fact, you know, mandatory work two weeks, that's, you were ahead of, ahead of most companies. Um, it, it, gives, it shows a sign that you're not only concerned about the physical safety of your stakeholders, but also psychological safety. Yes. Because if they, that one piece of equipment can reduce their stress and anxiety, yes. and anytime you turn on TV, you have anxiety, no matter what channel you're watching. That's right. So you're trying to stay informed, you're trying to be helpful, you're trying to be a good citizen for your company, 
but there's that sense of jobs and stock price and calls coming in for questions that may be first time. So, so anyway, I applaud you for really thinking about the holistic success of stakeholders, including psychological safety, by listening to equipment needs that they may have. Not many companies have the culture to do that. Yeah. Uh, so it's kudos to you. Hey, Colleen, thank you so much for being on the show. We're with Colleen Baroub, Chief Information Officer, Zendesk. You can follow her at C-O-L-L-E-E-N-B-E-R-U-B-E. -E -E. Definitely someone to follow uh, for great advice for and, and also understanding what it takes to be a Silicon Valley CIO. So thanks a lot for being on the show, and we'll catch up with you on the other side. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow. All right, there you go. High-powered, super informative, uh, knows what she's talking about, and uh, definitely, definitely, definitely a leader in, in, in the valley. So, yeah, so it's it's great to have an articulate CIO who, you know, leads with business, you know, outcomes and customer success, um, and and then lastly, technology, because a lot of what we're talking about is, uh, especially right now, is is it's it is about stakeholder safety and. and and uh, how do we leverage technology to, to deal with what's going on? So, which is not easy. Ray, you have lots of ideas and talk on this topic, but uh, I do, I do, I do. And we're definitely yeah. jumping there and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, previewing our little next guest in the back. You can see the background. Little, yeah, little yeah. Red I'm, hair. I'm, but, I'm uh, for the window to pop up with our next guest, Dr. Rye. Uh, so, uh, well, hopefully she pops in. But yeah, so, so one of the things that we've been talking about with CIOs, and it's really a whole bunch of stuff's happening in the background. We've got uh, literally, uh, I'd say probably something like I've had 30 background conversations with CIOs and CDOs this week, and everyone has suddenly discovered all the vulnerabilities that Colleen was talking about, right? A process. Oh, we couldn't requisition something for you, right? Okay, so let's go fix the requisition process. Um, we couldn't help you with, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of it was people processes that were so manual, right? And now people are building things into their onboarding process or a requisition process to automate it to get it to scale. Right. It's, it's even things like bandwidth. Like, how do I, how, I, I can't connect at home. And people didn't realize like how bad their home infrastructure was. It was fine if it was one or two people using it. But when people are doing homeschooling, like school online, right, people are trying to get on and everyone's having a call. It's been interesting to watch that saturation. Yeah. So absolutely. I don't know what you're seeing. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's the same here. There's, there's, uh, there, there, there's certainly a number of blind spots and gaps that need to be addressed in, in so many ways. And uh, one way for us to understand what's going on uh, is to have one of our favorite guests, uh, First Ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV, John Reed. Uh, John Reed is the co-founder of Diginomica, an enterprise, a regular member, and purveyor of multimedia content. Anybody who knows John knows that to be true. He's been building enterprise communities since 1995. Imagine, imagine that. And now these days, John is a roving water analyst. He advises vendors and startups on reaching today's informed enterprise buyer now that the sales funnel is discredited. Wow, talk about a bold statement there. He is an advocate of media over marketing. He sees Diginomica, the company that he co-founded, as a chance to disrupt tech media with a BS-weary enterprise reader in mind. Uh, uh, you must follow John uh, on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John Reed to Disrupt TV. <laughs> hey, John, thanks for being on the show, man. Good to see you. Are you on mute? You're on mute. I think that's me. Maybe we're doing Mandeep. I think we're gonna do Mandeep first. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's see where we are. Um, I think we're doing, I think John's not ready, but uh, we'll go to Mandeep. So let's do Mandeep. So let's okay. do Mandeep's uh, bio and welcome Mandeep. Hopefully uh, you can see us. So. Uh, the window keeps going in and out on me. So here, we're getting a little disruption here. Uh, oh, no. It looks like it's John. So Mandeep's not holding on her Wi-Fi, so maybe we'll get John in. So let's see what happens here. But uh, yeah, all right, John, you are up, man. We're, we're hey, guys. We're called Diginomica, man. Look Can at you that. Hear me, man? <laughs> Diginomica. Thanks, guys. So um, actually, I don't like how the button looks here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to button up for you. <laughs> oh, oh man, there we go. always pays attention to details. That's why. Yeah, so... Um, so I was going to show off my Corona beard, but I looked at it on cam this morning and it looked terrible. So you're setting for the Corona stash. Um, and then I also have the mutton chops, which are in honor of, they're in honor of the character Greg from the HBO show Succession. Um, if you've never seen that show, watch the season two finale and look for the Greg sprinkles. What are Greg sprinkles exactly? 
It's anyway. a great show. Great show. It's anyway, a- look look out for Greg Sprinkles. That's basically when you get thrown under the bus, but uh, <laughs> by your CEO. So you don't want that. So anyway. John, that's the only show. That's the only show where I don't like any of the characters. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, John, hey, John, how, how have you been on air, right? How, how, how have you, how, what's going on, man? I mean, let's, let's, is there, are you getting conversations about resiliency, good business practices? Like, what, what are you hearing out in the street? So, well, so the way I kind of started all of this is, you know, when I got thrust into uh, quarantine over here, I, I've got like decades of remote work experience. So what I said was like, well, how can I look at this from the angle of companies that don't like, so I spent a ton of time looking into the issue of enterprise scale, first of all, because remote work at enterprise scale is a whole different can of worms. And our prior guest, Colin, she spoke to that already, right? Like that even simple things like, you know, what computer do I use? Oh, and by the way, your, your home computer is probably out of date on a lot of software, which makes it more vulnerable to hacking. Like there's all kinds of considerations to scale. So I started looking at that. And, and, and then basically, uh, you know, I'm, I've been writing stories about different aspects of this. I wrote a story today about uh, a company that basically had to ramp up in, in APAC in some Chinese cities that were under Chinese style lockdown, which is nothing that you, you, you've ever seen here, right? Uh, you know, you have drones in the streets telling people to go home if they're outside, like that type of lockdown. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just, and, and, and not only the technical challenge of that, but the cultural challenge of that, right? Like, so you have people who were afraid and you have people in those regions who they, they weren't used to this work style flexibility thing. They went to work every day. Like the, the idea of being at home, like it's a whole cultural adjustment, right? So how do you do that? And so it's been really, really helpful for me to try to step outside my own game and understand that. Do you have a sense of which country is best suited for remote work globally? Um, I, I don't really know. I think, I think any, any company that is committed to their business model and the culture of their employees can find their way through this. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I suppose there's some advantage if you've already been telecommuting and empowering. I mean, in the case of like some companies I've talked with, they've already been doing a lot of this. So um, <laughs> In some ways, I see, you know, you talk about these things. There's a good aspect of this in the sense that, let's face it, too many of us have been compelled to get on airplanes when we didn't need to uh, yeah. for things that weren't necessary. And too many employees were compelled to come to the office when there was really no reason to come to right. the office that day, except some kind of, I mean, big tech companies are famous for this, right? That's why people are leaving Silicon Valley at 3 a.m. to get to their offices. That's nuts, yeah. you know? Like, like, so, so I think some of this is going to force this understanding that you can maintain a corporate culture virtually. And, and so I've been studying that and looking at different ways of how people are doing that as well, because look, that's not easy to do. I mean, there's a reason why it's easier to have culture in person. I mean, we, we've all broken bread together, right? I mean, it's, it's so much, it's so much easier to do that kind of thing in person than it is like remotely. And, and so, so I guess what I would like to get across about that is that there's an intentionality there. You have to say, how are we going to get some of that good culture vibe that we have in our office environment or at our events? How can we get that to happen virtually? And, yeah. and that, that's not a simple thing, but you can do things and there's companies that are doing it. So. I, I, I'll tell you, uh, not, was it yesterday? I think it was either yesterday or the day before I was on a company all hands meeting and I'm watching the counter and it gets to 41,000. And I'm sitting there going, the only time my company completely hears from our leadership, I mean, at that scale is Dreamforce. And yet we've had these all hands meeting almost every other day, multiple times a week, and like 40 plus thousand people are tuning in. And I'm thinking, my goodness, it's actually getting us closer to each other, even though we're all apart. Um, But at the same time, I'm wondering, can other companies do this? Are they doing this? And there's certainly companies that are much bigger than ours. So are they people doing hands-on? You know, like we've had Accenture executives, Accenture's 505,000 people. Do, are they doing all hands at that scale? And it's, it's you know, it's, ama- it's, 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 it's amazing to me. Um, and, and I don't know. I think someone talked to Julie Sweet recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's pretty wild. So I think one thing that's really been bothering me right now, and 
I do get grouchy about certain things. And one thing I'm, I'm grouchy about is, is, com is companies that have been caught flat-footed on this because like, so there's been companies, for example, that have canceled their virtual events. Why, how do you cancel a virtual event? <laughs> you know, like, like and, and, and obviously they're thrown by the fact that their messaging had to go out the window. But that, that's actually, crazy. I, I, do have the, I do have the answer for that, actually. I, I had this conversation with someone who canceled a virtual event and I, I was, I was about to chastise them in the sense that why the hell, how do you cancel virtual event? Exactly what you were saying. And it turns out this, they were going to do live production to no audience and they were afraid to get the people in the production crew sick. More than 10 right. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I'm sure in, in individual cases, there's valid reasons, but yeah. the point is that some people are caught flat footed. And yeah. I was having this interesting conversation with um, Thomas Wilgram over at ASUG the other day, because I, they, what they did is, you know, they, their constituents are SAP customers, members. They've, they've done a whole bunch of webinars based on role that are just open conversations. So, so in other words, you don't have to figure out a whole message right now, but the power of not just what you're talking about, Bob, of getting everyone in your company, but what about getting everyone who has the same role together? Like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's powerful, right? Like, yeah. so... So yeah. you got you got twenty C CIOs, different companies, just saying, "What's right. going on out there? Like, how are you responding? Like, so so it's really liberating on a certain sense to realize I don't have to have all the messaging figured out. I just need to need to get my customers together." And so, talk, talk about it. You've been researching and 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 will be producing content in terms of events of the future. Uh, what do these virtual events look like? Uh, and you can't bore me to death and just throw a webinar out there. Like oh my God, someone did that last week. Because you're not going to get people to sit in for hours on series of webinars. So having yeah. authentic conversations, creating an environment where you have 20 CMOs, CIOs, chief revenue officer, chief digital, and really yeah. talking about best practices or considered practices. I'm not even sure I can use best practice anymore because whatever we thought was best practice may be irrelevant. Right. Um, so, your thoughts, your thoughts about events moving forward. Yeah, so yesterday I wrote a piece that titled Your Virtual Events Are Legacy and So Are Your Webinars. Let's get cracking. I saw that. <laughs> and, and it was, and it was it basically the theme of that is that we've been sleepwalking through these virtual events for a long time because we've been getting by on the power of real events and our virtual events have sucked for a variety of reasons. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and part of my theme in that whole thing, I've been advocating for years that more interactive events are more online or more powerful from a, yep. business, case, from a business case perspective. But now they're incredibly important just from an emotional perspective, right? Yeah. Like, like, like you wake up and, and perhaps you're working on your own in your own domicile. And, you know, that's your connection to the outside world that day. And just listening to a speaker drone on in front of slides is yeah. not going to cut it. Now, what you're describing with virtual events, that's where companies start, need to start planning now because virtual events are a little more elaborate because now, of, uh, you know, there's a difference between a webinar and a virtual event. Like a virtual yeah. event implies multiple sessions perhaps and it implies the idea of networking as well so now you have to think about things like that and you can do it i mean there you know i have a local um organization putting on a conference today and tomorrow and i need to check their schedule but the last time i checked they were going to do some happy hour type events yeah. where people just show up and you know dress up like they were at a real happy hour with real happy hour clothes and like do their thing. Um, now, what I think we are going to find is that virtual event software still needs to get better. Yeah. Um, so, so at the moment, virtual event software is not everything it could be. Right. Um, so that's, that's something we're going to have to contend with, but um, it, it's time for companies to start thinking about that because now that virtual event for the next foreseeable future is going to be your flagship event. Right. To your point, it can't just be a webinar. Or I went to a virtual event this week, which was a bunch of canned recordings yeah. that were re that were released oh, at the same time. That horrible. I mean, that's that's, that's just that's absolutely brutal. Like like what 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 stops you from putting your C uh, CEO in a live session and start fielding questions? What is the problem with doing right. that? I think right. no. Crazy. Domo had the best so far this week. Like they had the production, Josh James shows up, you know, he's like visiting the salt flats, right? So they get the video. Then they had the live moderators going. They had Q&A where they actually put Zoom tiles of everyone. And, and literally the Twitter question was to come out, they live do it, they do the live demo, right? And, and people were doing it remotely. So it was complete production quality. I mean, it was amazing. And then in the middle, like right, like 30 minutes before it, they had an earthquake. 
<laughs> Salt Lake City. So, so like a 5.4 earthquake, 5.7 earthquake hit, right? And then like almost 10 minutes after they were done, there's, there's an aftershock that hit them afterwards as well. So it was like unbelievable how they pulled this off. So, so let me just walk you through, like, I'm, I'm starting to develop, this isn't anything too original, but I'm starting to develop a little bit of a framework for, for responses to this. Like, one is the immediate response, which is communicating about which services you can provide and you can't. Um, your own Liz Miller has been doing an awesome job about this because the way you communicate this is a big part of the issue. And a lot of companies are doing a horrible job of communicating what's going on. And so there's, there's good and bad ways of doing that. I recommend checking out Liz Miller's stuff on Constellation if you want to learn more about the good. Um, and then you have a stress test component, right? Which is to what extent can our systems handle the stress of what's happening? And, mm. and then there's a, there's a piece around resilience. And, and like I just read, a, I just retweeted something right before I came on about a, about a, a luxury perfume company that's, that's shifting into producing hand sanitizer which is like really a genius move, like when you think about it. But that doesn't necessarily, that, that doesn't fit into the category of like a long-term business adaptation. It's more like, here's how we can make a difference now. Here's how we might be able to sell some things now when people aren't probably gonna buy a lot of luxury perfume for the house. Um, you know, so, and, and then, yeah, maybe you do. I don't know. I, I can only speak for myself. I've been um, at it since I was 18. So you talk, call me. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then there's a whole thing around process optimization and reinvention. Right. And so like, how can we make our process better? How can we create new business models? That's why I was really like astonished to hear Colleen talk about how, what 15% of the CEOs in that survey had a digital, like, like a, uh, Wow, I'll bet you wish you had one now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? well, well, this is hot. Uh, this is a hot topic on of, of business continuity, John. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah. it's gonna be the number one topic. Uh, agility and business continuity, I think is one of the top topics we're gonna see post pandemic uh, because everyone was caught flat-footed, so. Yep. Yeah, I mean, your areas of focus, you know, customer experience, pursuit of AI and analytics, ROI, and realities of transformation. What is going, business as usual is no longer the case, in my opinion, given what, 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 uh, and what we're going through. So I, I, how are you reshaping or are you your, your research and, and your focus area for the rest of this year as we go through this uh, unprecedented time? Well, the first thing is you got to throw out all your assumptions and, you know, we all have these narratives. We view the market with you have to throw those out the window too and just start learning but we still have customers and so we still have to figure out, you know, we still have some semblance of an omni-channel strategy. We still have to get things to people. Um, from an AI perspective, I mean, a AI is that we could have a long conversation about that, which we don't have time for today, but, but the investment in AI, like to what extent can it help us uh, address our current situation and, and move forward? Um, I mean, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot here is the stress on supply chains so there's obviously a real opportunity there. And the good news with AI, you know, I, I should say that in quotes, I guess, but sure. the good news is that it, it's mature enough that you can start looking at how can it play a role in these use cases. But in general, it's not so much something that's going to liberate us from ourselves. I mean, I got a little bit annoyed by all the people that got so excited about how <laughs> AI spotted this virus ahead of everyone else or whatever, which first of all is bullshit. But, but second, um, Sorry for the language, but just need to be said. Um, but 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 second, like like human intervention was so important in in identifying what happened, and most of what has played out is, in my mind, human failings, not technology one way or the other. Uh, we we can look at ourselves in the mirror for the situation that we're in now. But but I do think that strategic use of technology, in in a proper way, can yes. help. And and AI is going to be a fruitful area to look at in terms of how, how, how to serve people better and how to just basically do a better job as humans and businesses in the next period. But John, on that note, that's amazing. We're with John Reed, co-founder, Diginomica. You can Pleasure, guys. At John ERP. Thank you for being on the show and then jumping in. So look forward to breaking bread together again. For sure, yes. for sure. Or we'll do a virtual yeah. bread. We'll do virtual yeah. dinner. We'll just no, pop no, no, a little... No. I want to see John eating. And one of my favorite things is watching you two eat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh my. oh, my. Oh, look at that. 
All right, John. Well, hey, we got our next guest. This is good. Hopefully we're all set here. So, um, yeah. Yeah, John is one of my favorite people and he's one of the smartest person I know. So yeah, it's our privilege. Uh, our, our, this is our cleanup hitter spot where we bring the, you know, the, the best and brightest people in the world to wrap up the show. It's our privilege to have Dr. Mandeep Rai, broadcast journalist, speaker, author of a new book, which we'll talk about. Dr. Rai is a global authority on values working with companies, institutions, and individuals around the world. Dr. Ryan has traveled to 150 countries. Ray, she's got you beat. I know. <laughs> and, okay. and before then, as, as a broadcast journalist for BBC World Services, Reuters, and among others, Dr. Ryan began her career in private banking at JP Morgan and later worked United Nations, European Commission, grassroots NGOs before setting up UAE's first media venture capital fund. Her new book, The Value Compass, which we see in Ray's background is what we're going to talk about. You can follow Dr. Mandeep Rai on Twitter at M-A-N-D-E-E-P-R-A-I. Welcome, Dr. Rai, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, You perfect. sound great. You sound Thank great. Goodness. Thank goodness. Sorry well, about the technical hitches earlier. No problem. Bandwidth is being crushed everywhere around the world as we speak. The shelter in place is uh, hitting everyone. But let's start with your own awareness process and that journey, because that was the road to helping you understand yourself before you could understand others. Help people set the stage, because you've been working in such amazing organizations, doing amazing work. Uh, and, and I think that kind of maybe was an input in some of this process. Indeed. I think once you've, you know, 150 countries is easy to say, hard to do. It will be even harder after uh, the, um, the chapter that we're going through right now. Um, but yes, each place that I'd go to, it was, you know, you'd find, I was always struck by something quite incredible in the people that, um, that I'd encounter. And in fact, right now, given the two interviews that have gone before me and how much we've spoken about the virus without saying the word virus, it was really interesting. You see each nation reacting very much according to their values. So China being pragmatic and just getting on with it and doing what it had to do very, very fast. And you saw Italy's attention to detail. Is it that more people are affected in Italy or is it that they're testing more? And you saw England's steadfastness is kind of keep calm, carry on, almost to the frustration of its population who were like, are you kidding? Are you not going to do anything? How, how, what? And then you saw America's pivot, this idea of, you know, one minute, maybe it was a flu, and the next minute we see uh, that there's kind of almost complete lockdown, I hear now, across the country, California, I know it depends on the different states, but it's pretty intense quite quickly. So what the book does is similarly take you around the world and show you the unique values in each, in each location. Um, and really, it's a journey around the world, but more importantly, then to take a journey within yourself to figure out what is it that works for me? What's important, say, for you as a reader? What are the values that are most important to you? And it's a tool that helps you go from the 101 possible values that there are down to your top five, because we can't handle everything all of the time. And it helps you prioritize and value some and devalue others so that you can make these work for you. That's amazing. That's amazing. 150 countries. You highlight 100 in your book. Um, can you yeah. talk to us? I mean, uh, the depth of research is unbelievable. I'm sure there were aha moments or surprises in terms of the values you uncovered traveling around the globe. But why is it so important to both understand and reflect on, on your values and these five reasons that, that you mentioned? Interesting. Why is it important to reflect on our values? Well, essentially, our values is how we make decisions. We don't often talk about it, but um, from the moment you get up in the morning to your whole entire day is based on your values. So let's say, for example, you've decided now at the beginning of this decade, your value, and especially with what's going on, your value is health, which we are. We have decided that health is much more important than any type of monetary reward or anything else that we could be doing. And that's globally we've decided that so therefore we are prepared to do anything for it put ourselves into quarantine um you know change not not be so rewarded um financially and what you find is that on a normal day if this wasn't if our global crisis or if our, if we weren't in this state right now if health was your most important value then your morning would look 
perhaps it would have some form of exercise in it. The way you'd eat would be different. The way you, you know, whether you choose acid or alkaline, how much your sugar intake, all of these things would change because you've decided your priorities, your health. You might decide, for example, that you're running the marathon in the next six months. Here in London, we've changed it from April to October. If that's your priority and health is your priority, the way you live just day to day, but the small decisions and the big decisions you make will reflect your value and that's that value prioritization. That's a great point. I mean, we, we've been trying to keep structure, right? I mean, you, you still get up, you still make sure you take a shower, like, you know, yes, just to make routine. sure you dress, you know, just get those routines in, especially with children and kids that are there uh, and, yeah. and at least have that. I mean, we, we made a point to go outside at four yesterday just to make sure that we got some fresh air because like I asked my son, when's the last thing he got out of the house? It's like two days ago. I'm like, really? <laughs> we've been locked in. I mean, so, so it's kind, yeah. of, kind of crazy, but you've got some important things really that talks about five reasons, uh, you know, that, that help people to understand and reflect on their values. Do you want to touch upon some of those and, and get people to think through those? The five reasons. Well, really it's the fact that, okay, we can't handle, if I asked you, if I, I'd have to ask you about your values tangentially. If I said to you, what do you value? It's really hard to, for you to answer that question directly. Mm-hmm. But if I say to you, what are the, um, who do you admire and why do you admire them? You're much more likely to touch mm-hmm. upon the things that you think are important. And we, because the human mind can't prioritize everything all the time, we ask to choose, it's easier if you choose five. You find that companies that specify their values often choose three or five, no more than five. And so similarly, the book, The Values Compass, helps you boil down to your top five because once you do, and even in that top five, you prioritize them, you know, you prioritize them so that some are more valuable than others. Because to have everything pegged as number one or as equal value doesn't work. Doesn't work. Um, Yeah. Exactly. So that's why five and that's how and the prioritization is super important. And you find initially people say to me, oh, I just can't, I can't possibly choose between, I don't know, love and excellence. They're both equally important to me or, you know, money and ambition. But actually, you find that there's an overlap between those values. And one of those things right now is more important than you, for you than another. And so it's about being really clear about the time frame. So it might be that you can't see past the next six months. I mean, we're really looking day to day right now. Um, but on a different, in a different occasion, it might be that your the time frame is two years until your next promotion. Sure, sure. So, so um, you worked at some of the biggest, most successful, impactful institutions from J.P. Morgan, United Nations, European Commission. You launched the Values Compass at Davos. So you are, you know surrounded by titans of industries and thought leaders and, and incredible successful businessmen and women. So this is a hard question. If you had to choose three, four, five countries that most represent the values you see in these extraordinary people, are there countries that commonly, are there countries where their values are commonly present in these extraordinary leaders that you've had the privilege of collaborating and working with? And I know it's 121 down to four or five, but, you know, is there a yeah. country that reflects even your values most or, or a set that's of a, That's a really good question. So <laughs> normally what people say to me are, um, what are your favorite countries or what are your favorite values? And I'd say that's like asking you, uh, that's like me asking you, what, who's your favorite child? It's like right, almost right, impossible right. kind of question to ask. Oh, oh, oh no, we lost her, but she's she coming back in. It's, uh, <laughs> that is, is a tough question because you go to 150, you narrow it down to 101, which is unbelievable in itself, just given the volume of 101. But we, we, you know, most leaders have probably five or six core values, most really successful. Like, you know, uh, you know, we, I, re- I, I remember Rachel Botsman's definition of trustworthiness. I mean, it said it's confidence in character and competence is capability, reliability, character is integrity and benevolence. So here are four, here are, uh, you know, four values, I guess, that uh, I was just, I was just mentioning when we, when we talked to Rachel Botsman, who wrote a book on trust, she said trustworthiness is, uh, is, is competence plus character. And she took her competence and said it's capability plus reliability. 
and character was integrity plus benevolence. So, so those four values made up trustworthiness, and certainly in every leader, we want to have trust and 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 so you know perhaps there are a handful of core values that you see very common in strong leaders. Right, and and related to that, if we took the Venn diagram of those values, what can we do to use that to bring people together instead of fermenting all this division? Oh, great question! Wow, these are these are these are these are big questions. <laughs> so yeah, so so yeah, so if um, if you can hear us, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, get get to some of those questions. I think we might be frozen. So. Um, but yeah, so some of the things that she was talking about, right, and, and I think, you know, in those five reasons that's important is, you know, help yourselves understand ourselves, right, and I think that was pretty important, uh, help people understand other people, uh, help people understand the values that are imprinted on them, like the things that you grew up with, uh, and help people understand what they want in life, right, there's things that you think you need, but what do you really want, and then of course, uh, reading the book is like, a, you know, how, how do you get a tiebreaker, like how do you choose one versus something else when you're actually in conflict, so Mandeep, can you hear us? Oh, okay. So we haven't, we've, we've lost her there. Um, we know bandwidth is getting crazy here. So yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, so, yeah, yeah. But, but it's an amazing book. I think it's something, you know, like if she can hear us, uh, you know, definitely somebody we might, we may want to bring over to our event, uh, at CCE, uh, definitely one of the reasons that we wanted to definitely talk to her, but, uh, yeah, we apologize. You know, it's the zoom platform is very reliable, but at this time, the entire world is, is uh, leveraging this platform and uh, Wi-Fi across various parts of the world is uh, is taxed more more than ever. Um, we, yeah. we still have a few minutes. Hey, now. can you hear us? Oh, we're good. Mandeep, jump in. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm very sorry about the technical issues. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so to ask your question about the countries, and I had said there's no favorites. However, your question was different. Your question was, what are those countries that leaders? Um, you know, you see in leaders more. And one of those would be resolver from Cuba. So what you see in leaders is this kind of resilience, which we're definitely seeing right now. This sense of it doesn't matter what we have or what we don't have, we're gonna make it work, no matter what. There's no other option. And when you have that kind of hunger and that um, intense desire that we're gonna make it work no matter what, you can do anything. And so you find that in you know, there's big institutions, but also startups and founders, that that's what differentiates a winner than a non-winner. That's terrific, that's terrific. My final question to you is, what do you hope readers, in my opinion, there's no better time than now to read the values compass. What we all want is forgiveness and honesty and empathy and love, and we want leaders to care. So, so what do you hope that your readers take away from, from your best-selling book? And by the way, congratulations. Uh, you know, your book is, is crushing it uh, in, 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 in such a Thank positive you. way. So what do, you, what do you hope are the big takeaways? My um, major hope, and I think now is the right time to do it, as we're at home, maybe at a point of reflection, is for us to really think twice before we lead our life through our resume values. You know, when you're just... Mm tick boxing and where we've all done it, I've done it, and you're just climbing perhaps a ladder, perhaps you're climbing it laterally, just to think, is this really what I want to be known for? What are my legacy values? What are the values? What are my eulogy values? What is it that I'd like said after I've gone? And if you, the book helps you become clear on those, and then the way you live your day, the way you live your month, the way you live your year, actually it's a game changer. And the way that you then extract fulfillment from what you're doing, that also changes dramatically. So it's not likely that the Dalai Lama said that the book leads to greater success, fulfillment, and happiness. It's because once you become clear about what really matters to you, not what you've been told is important, not what your family thinks is important, not what society thinks is important, but what actually makes you tick, then the way, then you just gain a diff completely different level of satisfaction in your life. You know, that, that journey to clarity is very hard, but, but with the time that people have now, hopefully they get a chance to actually uh, understand there and get to that point. Um, there was yes, one piece I really- it doesn't take long. It only takes, actually the exercise only takes 15 minutes and the book has been written such that it's very bite-sized. Each country, each value is only two pages. So it's written so that even when we think we don't have time and even now people don't think they have time, 
this is still manageable. <laughs> no, it, it, it took me less than an hour to go through that and, and really understand. Good. So um, oh, it also, also caused me to be a little bit more sharper in my, in my opinion. So <laughs> I think I, I probably have to come, pull back a little um, there. But yeah, I do want to ask you a question, right? It's, so with all those different values, there's got to be some kind of Venn diagram union where we can figure out values that bring us together versus values that cause division. What, what, where do you yes. see this on? Yeah, so the book has been divided into kind of five categories, as you rightly said, like change versus continuity versus community. When you value, um, for example, community, actually just being aware of your values helps you be aware of other people's values, and just that inherently brings us together and, and leads to unity rather than division. And right now, more than ever, we're aware of just not only our needs, but also our community's needs and the world's needs. So there isn't a better time. It isn't, it's an opportune time to take a humble moment of reflection. Terrific advice. Terrific advice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I highly Thank recommend you. the book. And, you know, there's no better time now for, for, for not just business leaders, but individuals to understand what time, time teaches us what really matters. And uh, certain times like this really accelerate that process. So thank you, thank you for and You're very welcome. And I, ha I was told yesterday that Amazon had stopped selling books because it was only delivering most urgent, necessary items. So I tried to buy my own book, and apparently you still can get it by Tuesday. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still delivering. So you can definitely get it there. And we'd love to catch up with you later, um, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe sometime at our conference when we actually have live events again. So we'd love to oh, bring you over there. I'd love that. I think it'd be I'd fun to have that. you so there. Thank you for being online, and thank you for not stopping, and thank you for serving us all. Oh, no problem. We are here with Dr. Mandeep Rai podcast journal speaker and author of The Values Compass. Go get that on Amazon. You can follow her on Twitter at Mandeep, M-A-N-D-E-E-P-R-A-I. So thank you for being on the show in so London. Thank you uh, for having me. Thank you. Thank wow. You. What a, this is why Friday is my favorite uh, time of the week because Ray and I get to be students and we get to learn from some of the most extraordinary people in the world. Next week is episode 183. I think we're about to cross 400 units. 400. <laughs> uh, that have been on our show. And it's really to think about 400 chief executives, venture capitalist founders, venture capitalist startup founders, best selling authors, you know, four star generals. We've had such a variety of guests. So, uh, and we'll continue that next Friday. Um, uh, Anna Gong, CEO at Perks Technologies. We have Matthew Sweezy, who's a Harvard Business uh, Press author, uh, talking about marketing insights uh, and, uh, you know, new, new, new trends in digital marketing. And Christine Tao, co-founder and CEO of uh, Sounding Board. So we have uh, an amazing author and two CEOs. Uh, and, you know, for me, this show is normalcy. Ray and I started this four and a half years ago. Every Friday we get together about 50 weeks out of the year. And uh, it's just nice to be on the show with you, my friend, because <laughs> this is the one constant that hasn't been impacted by a pandemic. So your final thoughts. You know, hey, look, a lot of people are running out there a little bit scared, a little bit fearful. Um, I think if we look at everything from the market economic indicators, I've been on a lot of business TV um, over the last few days. You'll see me again um, Wednesday and Thursday next week. Um, look, um, this is not a market correction. This is a public health pandemic. Uh, you know, I think that's what we have to start with. And I think as people start adjusting to the fact that we've decided to take a public health pandemic point of view, um, you know, it's, it's really about containment. It's really about control. It's making sure that, you know, people can actually understand what the virus does and, and, and come up with a vaccine. It's going to take some time, right? It, it might be four weeks. It might be six weeks. Uh, but while we're in the middle of that, you know, take that time to go build yourself up. Uh, think about the things you haven't been able to do. Reach out to the people you haven't talked to. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like you're not working, uh, but it, you know, that, that two hours of commute that you don't have anymore or some of the other stuff, you know, put that time to use, help out people around you. I think there are a lot of individuals that may need your help, might not be able to get to the toilet paper rush that's going on. Pick up some toilet paper for people, bring stuff, check in on your neighbors, make sure people are okay. If you haven't heard from someone, see, see if they're all right. Um, I, I think we will get through this. Um, people are mad at governments. Uh, they don't trust institutions. They're mad at the media. They're mad at all these places. Stop being mad. Um, let's figure out what you can do to help others. And, and I think if you do that, uh, we'll be in better shape. So. Terrific advice. Stop being mad. And thank you for your active engagement with you know, with people around the globe as a John Hopkins graduate and a public safety, health and safety expert, 
someone who's been, you know, uh, schooled and covered, obviously, healthcare industry for decades. You know, your, your contribution is um, well received and keep doing what you're doing. And you're right, stop being mad. Be grateful. This is a time for forgiveness and, 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 and love and gratitude and self-improvement. If you have an opportunity to improve, uh, stay teachable. That's the most important skill. Yes, stay, teachable. stay and, teachable. Uh, and thank you, my friend, for your friendship. This has been fun. Yeah, so, uh, I can't wait till we hit 400. We got to make the post called 400. I mean, that's, that's going to be awesome. Oh, it's not, working on a new book. I've got time. In, there's wisdom and foresight in this book that's very relevant right now. Pick it up if you haven't already and start reading it and, or rereading it. All right, Ray, All right, right. Friday. Thanks, everyone. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy Friday. Thanks for producing this, L. And uh, this is Disrupt TV. Every, 11, every Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for all being on the show. Cheers, everyone.